It's the new year, everybody. Happy January 1, 2024. This is Harry Kaysen, and on today's film review show, I'm highlighting three new movies for the month. The Zone of Interest, American Fiction, and Maestro. Plus, I'll toss in my two cents on which movies this year might just receive a Best Picture Oscar nod. And, as always, I'll have an interview with one of my esteemed Hollywood compatriots. I do hope you'll stay tuned, here on Movie Night. As I've said, I'm Harry Kaysen, and this show is Movie Night, here on WOMR and WFMR. In my career, I've been a writer, director, and actor in Hollywood, though now I'm thrilled to call Cape Cod my home sweet home. This is my first episode of 2024, and besides the fact it's the new year, it's now my second year here on this wonderful station. Why the title Movie Night, you may ask? That's K-N-I-G-H-T, a defender of the realm, the realm being the movie realm, as it were. Now, my opinions are mine and mine alone, and the one thing I won't be doing is handing out negative reviews. That's because I know firsthand how challenging it can be to bring a film, any film, to life. And this vaunted radio station, WOMR, is such a beacon of positivity, I want to honor that noble legacy like a good movie night should. As an added bonus, as mentioned, I will also be interviewing my dear friend from Hollywood, Darby Simons. She is a producer who dwells in the world of reality television. She's been right there on the front lines of many a fine show, including The Jeff Corwin Experience, Landscaper's Challenge, Strictly Sex with Dr. Drew, Trading Spouses, One Man Army, and House Hunters. She has wonderful stories of life in the far-flung trenches. Stick around for our fascinating interview. First up is The Zone of Interest. It was written by Jonathan Glazer from the novel by Martin Amos, and it was directed by Jonathan Glazer. It stars Sandra Hewler and Christian Friedel. It's nominated for a Golden Globe, and it won the grand prize at the Cannes Film Festival. I expect it to be nominated for an Oscar. This is a Holocaust drama. Yes, I know there have been a few of those, but here's what sets this apart. Based on real people, we follow the host's family, the head of that family just happening to be the commandant of Auschwitz. The entire family of husband, wife, and five children and their servants all live in a comfortable house on just the other side of the high wall to the concentration camp itself. But this is not Schindler's List, where the commandant looked out over the prisoners occasionally shooting them for fun. This is much more subtle and more frighteningly believable. These people are going about their daily lives, going on picnics, tending their elegant gardens, having tea served on the porches, all the while, just over there, out of sight, unspeakable atrocities are being committed. How do we know? Because every now and then there is a random gunshot in the distance. Every now and then a steam train chugs up to the camp, its unseen cargo being discharged as orders are being barked out. How does one live with oneself? knowing what's going on beyond that high wall. Ah, therein lies the rub. How many of us live with ourselves, knowing there's injustice in the world? How did any German live with themselves as their entire country marched into madness? Where is that switch in your brain that you have to turn off in order to just get by as the entire world catches fire? 
What makes this film so riveting is the utter calm and ordinariness we witness this family experiencing amidst one of the most notoriously evil places in the history of mankind. The civilized aspect of it all is what makes it so uncivilized. The wife tries on a gorgeous fur coat, knowing full well its original owner is probably now ash floating over her house. But the original owner wasn't a person. It was a thing, a category. It was the other. To my mind, there's entirely too much of that kind of thinking going on in the world, even as I speak. This important film helps to point out the mechanism of lies we have to live with in order to hate, in order to condemn our fellow man and woman. Is this film violent? Surprisingly not. Is it bloody? Not at all. Is there torture and screaming? Mm, only in the distance, though that distance be a mere 50 yards away. Highest marks here for all involved. The Zone of Interest, in theaters now. The next movie here on Movie Night is American Fiction. It was written by Cord Jefferson from the book Erasure by Percival Everett. It was directed by Cord Jefferson as the first film helmed by him. It stars Jeffrey Wright, Tracy Ellis Ross, John Ortiz, Leslie Uggams, and Sterling K. Brown. This is a comedy set in present-day Massachusetts. We follow Dr. Thelonious Ellison, nicknamed Monk, a Ph.D. and professor of English, his sister Lisa, played by Tracy Ellis Ross, is a medical doctor, and his brother Cliff, played by Sterling K. Brown, is a plastic surgeon. Quite an accomplished family. They have a beach house, they're sophisticated, the fact that they're also black doesn't play into it at all. That is until Monk is trying to get his new book published. Monk's agent, played by John Ortiz, tells him there's no market for his dry, scholarly work. He should go check out a new hot author. Monk goes to a symposium for this new author an obviously well-educated black lady, but when the black lady reads from her newly acclaimed work, it sounds like she's straight from the ghetto, street, grammar, and all. Monk is appalled. This is clearly a book that is pandering to a guilty white audience. And so Monk, enraged by the outrageous circumstance, decides to make it even more outrageous. He quickly fires off a wild piece of fiction under a pseudonym that purports to tell a down-and-dirty first-person account of what it's like to survive on the mean streets of the hood, a place Monk has never even been. Big surprise! The book is a runaway hit! And the author is a wanted criminal, someone from the ghetto who has lived a very hard life and is telling it like it is to Whitey. Except none of that is true. <laughs> Now Monk has to figure out if he's going to pretend to be someone else, take the money, which will help his mother's medical bills, or is he going to just blow it all up because he's disgusted that his previous serious work isn't taken seriously, but sensationalistic trash seems to be all the rage. Now, this film plays on a lot of stereotypes, and gleefully so. Where it goes is not necessarily where anyone would expect. Jeffrey Wright is excellent as Monk, who is outraged one moment, flabbergasted the next, and soon realizes he's created an oddity that is happily embraced by a confused American culture. But there's more here than two-dimensional laughs. There's Monk's family, who are portrayed as three-dimensional people. The director, Cord Jefferson, takes the time to open up these people, letting us walk around in their shoes. I was surprised and pleased by that. It's rare for a high-concept comedy to do that. What could have been rushed and frenzied and strident 
instead is thoughtful and intelligent and engaging. And it makes fun of everyone. Black, white, brown, yellow, polka dot, if the shoe fits. American Fiction, in theaters now. Up next is Maestro. It was written by Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer, and it was directed by Bradley Cooper. It stars Bradley Cooper, Carey Mulligan, Matt Bomer, and Sarah Silverman. I'm sure most of you know this film is a biopic about the late, great American composer and conductor, Leonard Bernstein. It follows his life, from the fateful moment he fills in for an ailing fellow conductor, which allows him to conduct at Carnegie Hall which then leads him on a meteoric path to the absolute pinnacle of American classical music. I'm of an age where I remember quite vividly who and what Leonard Bernstein was to the American public. Not only did he compose the music for the phenomenally successful West Side Story, and not only was he the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, the most prestigious orchestra in the country, he also made regular appearances on television, hosting his Young People's Concerts, where he would introduce classical music to a young audience. I grew up in the Midwest in the 50s, and everyone around me of all ages knew who the superstar Leonard Bernstein was. There's almost no comparison today in American classical music. Pop music, yes. Classical music, no. Meanwhile, Bernstein's personal life was just that, his personal life. It wasn't in the picture. Well, it's in this picture. It's now well known that Bernstein was bisexual, that he was less than faithful to his wife, that he had wild mood swings. That's in there, as befits the marketplace these days. But what's also in there is the arena he lived in, the glittering New York parties, the banter, the showbiz glamour of it all. And it's very heady and very beautiful. Yes, perhaps there's a bit too much time spent on Bernstein's personal struggles with his relationships, and perhaps not enough time spent on Bernstein developing his genius, in my humble opinion. I'm thinking that aspect could best be explored in a book with an inner narrative, rather than a movie. Bradley Cooper is doing an impression here, and though I do feel he was a little hamstrung by having to sound like Bernstein, which he normally doesn't, he did bring all of Bernstein's physicality to the role, which is a major accomplishment like Jamie Foxx playing piano note for note in the same manner and style as Ray Charles, Cooper conducts in exactly the same manner as Bernstein. That's a glory to behold. And Carrie Mulligan gives a standout performance as Bernstein's wife, Felicia. She's deeply in love with her husband, though he does give her every cause to leave, not the least being his wandering eye and wandering body. Having been around artists quite a bit in my life, there's always a danger they will take themselves so seriously that they believe their behavior is sacrosanct, that their rare temperament grants them the right to do just about anything they want. That is where this movie lives. But Bernstein was not a monster. He was not a Picasso or a James Joyce, shredding the souls of those around him. This movie shows him to be a searching, desperate heart, yearning to express his inner realm, which seems unfulfilled though there are some spectacular sequences where we see Bernstein at the podium, who seems as fulfilled an artist as there could be. It's a wonderful tribute to an endlessly complicated man. This is a rare, occasionally blunt, though ultimately loving portrait of an important artist. Maestro, on Netflix.
And now it's time for my guest. She is Darby Simons, a supervising producer for many a reality TV show. She and I have known each other for decades, and we've worked together on a scripted sci-fi TV show, Seven Days. She has since then been deep in the trenches, and she can tell us firsthand what's going on behind the scenes of those shows we just can't take our eyes from. And she's working on a new show, a true crime show called Buried in the Backyard. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Darby Simons. So hi, Darby. How are you? Very well. How are you doing? Just fine. Thank you. What was the last thing you've been working on? The last thing I worked on was a true crime show called Buried in the Backyard. Nice. Buried on Oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's the talk about that. Let, ever. Let's just jump into that. That sounds like a whale of a good time. Good Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's your position on that show? Uh, senior field producer. Okay. And what's the difference between a producer and a field producer? I'm not sure I know. Well, producer, as we all know, is just sort of a general term. It can, you know, apply to so many things. So uh, if you're a field producer, that means you do most of your work in the field, um, whether it's directing or interviewing or whatever that, or logistics, depending on if that's your position. So field people are the ones that go out and do the work. I see, the ones in the trenches. Um, mm -hmm. And a senior field producer means you're you're the top dog in the field, so to speak? Yeah, Cool. That's very cool. Uh, yeah. So so walk me through a day. What, what, what's your day usually like on a typical day if there is such a thing? Well, right. Every show's different. But on this particular show, there, there are two different kinds of days for me. One is um, where we're out shooting the places that are pertinent to the story. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be looking for creative shots, shots that tell stories, signage, interesting uh, visuals that will go along with, with our story. Yeah. And the other side of the, of my shoot days is interviewing. Okay. So it's going to be uh, a day where you get up and you're conducting three hour interviews all day long. Oh boy. Enforcement, family members, things like that. How do you find these stories? How do these stories come to you guys? Uh, we have research team. Uh, that, that finds these stories. And it's tough. It's not easy to do um, true crime because it has to go through so many levels before you actually get greenlit on a show. I'm not sure it's what that means. First of all, it has to be uh, adjudicated. So uh, we don't, our show does not do any show or, or any, any episode that hasn't, um, hasn't that gone to the courts. The is. Right. Yeah. Some, some do uh, our show. We don't. So you got to find that. And then all the family members have to sign off. We don't do anything without family members approval. And then it goes through the network and it goes through their legal teams. And wow. they also have to look to see is is um, another network doing, you know, this particular story. If so, it's off the table. Yeah. So there are a lot of levels that, that they have to go through in order to even get a show going. Is there a concern about location like, oh, we can't go to Alaska or oh, we can't go to Connecticut or Florida? We or did two shows in Alaska. Wow. Okay. So you're going anywhere. Going anywhere. Chasing wow. the story. Yeah. It was. How, uh, how long do you spend in your location? Like when you did the Alaska show, the most recent one, how long were you in Alaska? Uh, I was not one of the, the people, the person that went to Alaska, but I think they were there for four or five days. Wow. Five days in Alaska. And we're talking about five people crew, four people crew. Yeah. It would be the, the producer, the field producer, uh, DP audio and a PA. So four. Yeah. Okay. 
really small. These are tight, tight, tight. Yeah, of course. It's guerrilla filmmaking, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's cool. Now, when I was in New York, um, we actually had a, a pretty big team because we were also doing recreations at that particular location. So we had sure. three PAs. The the um, executive producer was there. I was there. And then the typical uh, team. So it was a little bit more more advanced than what we do. Right. For those listeners who aren't familiar with that term, the PA is a production assistant, oh, which means yes, basically a gopher, someone who does anything you tell them to do. Well, they're, you, they're essential. Yeah, they are. Are you are you hiring local or are you bringing people with you? Local hires. Oh, cool. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. How do you find how do you find those folks for my listeners out there that want to be on a TV show? How do how do you you know what? Uh, a lot of the time it's word of mouth, which is great. But there are also sites like Staff Me Up, things like that, that that uh, a lot of production companies use. I've been seeing the in, in the production values of a lot of movies recently. I've been shocked as to how fluid the cameras are. So these cameras, they must be very, very small these days. How 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 big or small are the cameras you're typically using? They're 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 smaller now, definitely than the big Panasonic's that we used to use, and we're yeah. all shooting on cards now. We used to shoot on cassette, so it's a sure. it's a tighter operation. And we are our, our um, AC. Well, actually, I'm wrong. We have more than that. We have our our DP, and he has an assistant. DP meaning camera. director of photography. Director of photography, and then the assistant camera, who yeah. it really helps all the time. But our assistant camera also uh, a, a lot of the time shoots. So we've got two cameras going, which is really, really, really helpful. That's great. Now, when I worked on a reality show, uh, I was kind of overwhelmed by how much footage there was because they were shooting with 10 cameras. And so I was getting hundreds of hours of footage that I had to, I had to whittle down to an hour. Are you facing those kinds of situations? Not nearly like that. I mean, we don't Not like have that. Not 101 that. anyway, but you're probably you're probably getting 10 to one, aren't you? I have no idea what the ratio is. That's an editor's question. Ah, someone else has to handle, handle that problem. That's somebody <laughs> else's problem. But um, I will tell you this, that when we get back to the office, they never feel like they have enough footage. They just really? never feel like they have enough footage. Yeah, sure. Well, that's everybody feels that way all the that's time. Right. Anytime that's you right. use a camera, you always feel like there's that one last shot I didn't get. Right. Or we get back into the office and and they're like, oh, you know, we just feel, don't feel that we have enough. So but but it all depends on budgets, too. I mean, we're out there for two days trying to cover a 44 minute episode. Wow. Um, That's really lucky. Yeah. yeah. And and some of our DPs don't have um, some of our directors of photography don't have assistant camera. Which oh, yeah. means that we are only using one. Now, the field producers are starting to shoot on our iPhones. Oh boy, sure, sure. So now we are submitting uh, footage as well. So that helps a lot too. So well, as far as locations, you have a favorite location, the place you, you didn't know you would like when you got there. And what, by the time you left, you kind of fell in love with that, that whole area. Besides Cape Cod, of course. Of course. Uh, <laughs> you know what? Paducah, Kentucky was a surpriser. When I was working on House Hunters, I, I was in Paducah several times and it's an adorable little town. And okay. it's where Quilters uh, Convention happens every year. And the Quilters it's Convention, that's, that's adorable. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And uh, there's a museum there for quilting. It's just super cute. So I think, you know, going to Kentucky for me personally, you know, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, Cracker, Cracker Barrel all over the place. Right. Um, but it, it was a really surprising little town. Oh, that's sweet. Well, the one thing about the Cracker Barrel Nation is they are very friendly. They are very friendly. They're so friendly. Yes. Yeah. M much better manners than the rest of us have. For oh, sure. that's really true. It's really yeah. true. 
let's talk about House Hunters. Uh, how long were we with that show? I was on House Hunters for just going on to my ninth year. Wow, nine years. Yeah. yeah, and you know, that's nothing compared to most of the staff. That is a show that you just don't leave. Really? So um, House Hunters has been on the air for what? 25, 30 years, something like that. Has it really? No kidding. I didn't know that. Something around there, uh, at least 20. And a lot of my colleagues had been there from the beginning. I was at Pie Town. Um, House Hunters is produced by a production company named Pie Town. They're right here in, in uh, LA. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was working at Pie Town, they got House Hunters, the very first season. And a lot oh. of my friends went and worked on it. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, a lot of those folks are still there. Wow, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also worked on Trading Spouses. I did. How did you enjoy that? Well, Trading Spouses, uh, which is, gosh, what, 20 years old or something like that? Right. <clears throat> was my first uh, uh, work in the field. I had been working in post and here and there and, and in the office. And so this was a, a promotion where they sent me out into the field. <laughs> yeah, trading was pretty intense because that was kind of the early days of reality yeah so people didn't know what they were getting into now now if you do a reality show you know what you're getting into i don't yeah. feel bad you know they're going to show the, the warts and all they're, they're going to put you in a, in a situation you know fish out of water for sure yeah um but people didn't really know then they made a lot of money i don't know exactly how much but enough to entice them no kidding so, so things could get a little nuts. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've seen some of those episodes and they are more than a little nuts. They're, yes. they're completely nuts. Yes. The God okay. worshiper, the famous one was uh, an episode that I, I worked on and yeah, we had a lot of fun with her. She was yeah. a, a, an interesting cat. Didn't she, didn't she even become a bobblehead? She became so famous. She became a bobblehead. Yes. She yeah. also tried to push me out of a cab. So when she got to the airport to be, transported back to, to her home, which was our set, she threw a fit. She absolutely threw a fit and production couldn't handle her. Oh no. And called me and my partner and said, you need to come to the airport immediately. Oh. We did. And um, was she, was, what was she throwing a fit about? Isn't it over? Screaming it? and going on and refusing to get into the vehicle and just really out of her mind. Oh. Felt that there, a witch had been, once she had met the the new mom at their meeting, uh, decided that their her family had been uh, exposed to a Wicca and that oh. she was yeah, dealing in pagan activity and just was freaking out. So I got in the cab with her and tried to talk her off the ledge, which, of course, she was screaming and yelling and telling the guy to pull over and push me out of the car. Oh, <laughs> oh those were good times. Not paid nearly enough for that. <laughs> right. We lived through it. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you have, and I don't want you to give these ideas away, but I'm sure you have ideas for shows of your own that you want to uh, get going at some point. How close are you to having something like that happen? You know, my interest for that has waned. Um, I think there's so much content out there that it doesn't interest me anymore. Really? It used to. I used to have a lot of ideas for things I wanted to do. But, I mean, you can make your own show on TikTok. Well, that's true. So it just... Just give me a good old Alfred Hitchcock and I'll be happy. And that's. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't no that, more... isn't that what true crime is like? Isn't that pretty close to an Alfred Hitchcock feeling kind of a show? I guess so. I mean, I, I was pretty, I, I had been asked to do true crime quite a bit before I finally gave in. Cause I thought I'd be scared to death. 
And you do. You think about murder constantly, constantly, constantly. You're trying to solve the mystery because really, a lot of the time, nobody knows what really happened except the murderer and the victim. And of course, the murderer never tells the truth about what happened. So you find yourself trying to solve mysteries all the time and thinking about these people all the time and what would have been if they hadn't run into this person or talked to a guy in a casino or got going on the internet and answering messages from strangers and yikes is it always murder is the is the show always about murder yes okay it's always about being buried somewhere oh. it's called buried in the backyard <laughs> i know but, I, it's but not always in the backyard in, though yeah we have buried in the snow buried oh. in the backyard oh. buried in the woods buried <laughs> in the water <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> okay america Ooh. you asked for it you got it So, Darby Simons, thank you so very much. Congratulations on your continued success. We look forward to seeing all of your shows. Anyway, Darb, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Okay. Okay. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And now, as a special fold-out section of today's program, I'll talk a bit about the films I expect to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Only a couple of surprises here. First off, Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos. I reviewed this picture last month and my opinion is still the same. It's a take-no-prisoners comedy with a dazzling performance by Emma Stone as its centerpiece. Once you see this film, you will never forget it. Next is Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese, a tough and often brutal real-life historical testament. There is beauty to be found, though, especially in the fine performance of Lily Gladstone, the Native American actress. I also think A Thousand and One by A.V. Rockwell will be nominated. This is a dazzling, real-as-can-be drama about the kind of people one rarely sees in movies, and Tayana Taylor as the main character is absolutely riveting. Of course, Barbie will be nominated, regardless of all the hype. It's about the most fun anyone can have in a movie theater this season. And if there was a better-suited actor to play Barbie other than Margot Robbie, I have no idea who that would be. I think Oppenheimer will receive a nomination. It might receive the most nominations. It's a fine, thought-provoking film, and unlike the other movies I've mentioned, it has a male as the main character, with Killian Murphy not acting as Oppenheimer, but actually being Oppenheimer. Past Lives is also one I believe will get the nod. It's more subtle by far than any of the other movies I've mentioned, but it's also the most heartfelt. And there are two actors who deserve equal recognition, Greta Lee and Teo Yu. Anatomy of a Fall is one of those rare Hitchcockian films that actually lives up to its predecessor. And The Zone of Interest, as reviewed in this episode, is hauntingly relevant. Both of them starring Sandra Hewler. And, because it's the biggest movie production-wise this year, look for Napoleon to get a nomination. I didn't review this film because I found Joaquin Phoenix's performance opaque and rather confusing, though he's doing what he always does, committing himself fully, bringing all his neurotic angst along with him. Still, every single aspect of production is supremely handled. So, we'll see how this all plays out after the nominations are announced later this month. So, dear listeners, that's it for this New Year's Day, 2024. I want to thank the wonderful folks of WOMR and WFMR for allowing me to be a part of their extended, eclectic, and entertaining family. 
My thanks especially to John Braden and Mr. Matthew Dunn. And of course, a thank you to my wife, Lynn, for joining me on my viewing travels. And most of all, I thank you. This is Harry Kaysen, The Movie Night. Happy New Year, goodbye, and good movies.